Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Biff Bites. I'm your host, uh, Jerry, joined as always by my co-host, Mike. How's it going, Mike? Hey, Jerry, you know me, just living the dream here at the <laughs> Biff Bites studio. I bet. Plus, plus, I'm extra excited today because we have an outstanding CFP practitioner guest First time guest, and as always the tradition, first time guests bring us beer. Yeah. So life is good. Yeah, Brandon, you you, uh, you got that memo, right? Uh, yeah, sure. And I, I definitely have a, a pretty good uh, background in beer, so I can I can hit whatever you like. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, keeping the guest train rolling, we have another awesome guest on today, Brendan Flaherty, uh, who is program director for the uh, Bryant CFP program. Thanks so much for uh, coming no, on with I've us. I've been looking forward to doing this, and I appreciate you guys having me on, so thank you so much. Yeah. Definitely. Brandon, you have a wealth of knowledge about just the industry in general because you are a practicing CFP yep. and also the the curriculum because you are program director here at uh, the uh, Boston Institute of Finance. Yeah, it's been, uh, I've been fortunate to have been doing this since 2012, uh, teaching undergraduate finance since 2007. Uh, and have run my own financial planning practice in Providence, Rhode Island uh, since 2004. So... I've seen just about a little bit of everything. Very nice. Yeah. So great person to have on. You also have uh, some specialties that we wanted to talk about a little later in the episode, some things that you're really interested in, and also just kind of get your perspective on kind of the education curriculum as a whole. And I think our listeners are going to find really valuable. Great. Uh, But shall we dive in, get warmed up with the question of the episode, gentlemen? Yes. Let's Go go for it. All right. So. Tim Brown, a new client, has engaged you, a CFP practitioner. He is asking for investment advice only. In addition to holding the CFP certification, you are a registered representative of a FINRA broker-dealer. Tim has a portfolio of stocks he has purchased through dollar cost averaging over the years. The portfolio contains seven stocks equally weighted in very different industries. In reviewing his portfolio, what composite, in parentheses here, risk-adjusted, measure of portfolio performance should you implement giving his existing stocks? So, lots to unpack with that question. I feel, before we kind of get into the meat of this question, let's talk about kind of the red herrings here. What what are some of the red herrings uh, in this question that kind of just throw you off that don't really have anything to do with the question as as a whole? Well, I would say right off the bat, you can you can take a look at the fact that he's a registered representative of a FINRA broker dealer. You know, in terms of the content and in terms of you know really the substance of this question and the CFP in general, that doesn't matter. Um, I would say that it's it's important to understand that he has purchased the stock through dollar cost averaging. But again, to the answer that we're going to be looking at here, uh, probably not a relevant piece of information. Uh, where we start getting into relevant pieces of information is the the, the portfolio contains seven stocks um, uh, that are equally weighted in different industries, uh, and so that that's to me is is starting to show that you know while it's a relatively small portfolio, he's he's done some work to try and diversify uh, his risks away um, by doing some equally weighting uh, in, in, into the different industries that are I'm assuming seven of the eleven S and P uh, industries or sectors. So uh, it starts to focus you in on a couple of different areas that you'd want to look at. Right. Like when I see this question, I just start immediately thinking about responsibility to the client and the financial planning process because it's leading you down that path. It's, you know, he's looking for investment advice only. Yep. I see that and that triggers in my brain. OK, what type of relationship is yeah, this? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, then yep, it's that's a, a fair point. Yeah. Then it's, you know, registered representative of a FINRA broker dealer still leading like hand holding you down that path. And then you get to the end of the question and it's like a complete U-turn. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about any of that at all. <laughs> yep. Typical CFP this question. This is one of those for for me that um, I read the last sentence first <laughs> right. from a test-taking <laughs> standpoint to try to isolate some of the noise right. or filter out some of the red herrings. And so, I, you know, I know I'm looking for a, a risk-adjusted measure of portfo- uh, performance and then back up one more sentence and see the seven stocks. And that's about all I think I would look at to get going on this one. Yeah. Perfect example of, you know, read the last sentence first to really get at the meat of what the question's asking. So, uh, as, as Mike pointed out there, 
what is the risk adjusted measure, you know, that when we see that, that might not be obvious to people studying for the exam. But usually when we see that, we're talking about like uh, trainer, sharp, Jensen, um, you know, which of those is going to be the most useful in analyzing uh, this portfolio. And that is, in fact, our four options. So we have uh, option A, trainer, option B, sharp, option C, Jensen and option D coefficient of determination. So from my perspective with those four choices, I definitely would start honing in on the top two. Um, mm-hmm. I think that they're the most useful in this in this uh, situation to to give us the best risk adjusted measure. And so how come what why not Jensen or coefficient of determination? Like what does the coefficient of determination have to do with any of this? It, it, it really it, not a whole lot, right? So so I think that that um, Jensen specifically, you know, while you could argue is a uh, is a measure of a risk adjusted uh, performance, it, it's more in line with the skill of portfolio managers as opposed to just a straight. Uh, risk-adjusted rate of return, um, whereas mm-hmm. Trainer and Sharp just kind of get you down to, you know, if you look at the at the formulas for both, uh, the numerator, which is on top, is is the return of the portfolio minus the risk-free rate of return. So let's find out what this portfolio delivered us uh, on top of what we can go ahead and get for free, right? So the risk-free rate of return, we don't really have to expose ourselves to any risk at all, and we're going to get some measure of return. You know, albeit this uh, this these days, not not a whole lot. Uh, and then we differentiate in the denominator the types of risks that we're looking at. So with sharp, we're worried about total risks, uh, which is the risks we can diversify away and the risks that we can't diversify away. Uh, and we use standard deviation as the uh, the, the risk statistic. Uh, and with trainer. Uh, we, we don't really worry about the risks that we can diversify away. So we're going to go ahead and assume that we've gone ahead and, and stripped all that out, and we're now down to just market risk. And so we're down to the risk that we can't get rid of, uh, and it's the, it's the cost of doing business by, by applying assets to risk uh, in, in the markets. Uh, and then you have to look at, okay, well, do we think that we've done that with a portfolio of seven stocks? And I think that this question tries to lead you down the path of assuming that you are well diversified because it says that you're equally weighted in seven different industries. Uh, and I think that, again, as I said before, I think it's the beginning of, of that diversification. But academically, you would say that you don't get down to that market risk until you've got at least, again, depending on who you believe, somewhere between 25 and 35 uh, different securities in the portfolio. So here, I would say that we have not done everything we can do to get rid of the diversifiable risks or the, uh, the non-systematic risks. And uh, so therefore, we'd have to worry about total risk. Therefore, we're worried about standard deviation, and we would choose B, the sharp ratio. Gotcha. So I just want to back that up and kind of simplify that a bit for some of our newer uh, listeners who maybe haven't gotten to the investments part of their studies yet and might be seeing Trainer, Sharp, and Jensen for the first time here. So option D, coefficient of determination, that has really nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. So that just kind of gets... No, you could could make an argument that you could fit it in there somewhere, but it's it's really not a relevant answer. To to me, that answer is uh, here's some fancy buzzwords. Hopefully, you choose it because it looks nice. Yeah. Type uh, <laughs> type answer. It's the attractive so. uh, wrong choice. Yeah. If the if the question were different, sometimes from an exam standpoint, they'll give you the coefficient of determination yeah. R two, mm-hmm. and you know if that number is not pretty high, then um, trainer using beta would not be a real reliable uh, risk measurement. That's that's correct. Um, Right. But students sometimes you like, well, how high is high? Does it need to be 70% on, on R2 or what? I, I, I've always said from a testing standpoint, it's not going to be close. It's not going to be 69%. It's not going to be uh, 72. It's either going to be really high or really low. And you'll know then whether you're good, you can use train or you better default to, to sharp. Yep. That's how I kind of look at R2's relevance. Yep. But we don't have that information, so it 
<clears throat> certainly is not relevant here. Right. So coefficient of determination, that's out, un- unrelated for this question. Jensen is really, like you said, Brendan, a measure of the portfolio manager rather than the portfolio itself. Yeah. It's it's mm-hmm. Jensen is trying to figure out, you know, how good is this portfolio manager? Is he worth the fees that he's collecting? Or she, Jerry. Uh, or she. Sorry. Yes, you are right. You are right. Uh, so Jensen, that's not really what we're asking here. You know, if Tim Brown was in here wondering if he should fire his portfolio manager because he doesn't know if he's, you know, getting a good enough return or if he's, you know, worth it. Uh, that's where Jensen would come in. But in this case, this is a portfolio that Tim has picked himself and he's just really wondering, uh, is it, is it worth it? Uh, just from the pure intrinsic value of the portfolio itself, regardless of the investment decisions of the manager that limits us down to trainer and sharp. And here's where it gets a bit tricky where, uh, what it really comes down to is the definition of diversified. What is a diversified portfolio? And correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, but I don't believe there is a official definition of a diversified portfolio. Nope. It's kind of a perspective. It's, it's more interpretation for sure. Right. So if it was, so let's say that he had a portfolio of 50 investments, which what would be the answer in that case? I, I think if it was fifty pharmaceutical stocks, I think he'd be diversified within the pharmaceutical sector, but not necessarily diversified. But if we have fifty stocks that spread evenly across all eleven S and P sectors, then absolutely he'd be down to um, he'd be down to the risks that he can't get rid of. Uh, Brendan's too smart for my gotcha questions. Doesn't let me have any fun. <laughs> right. So that's the other point. You know, it, just because having a high number of stocks in the portfolio doesn't necessarily mean it's diversified. It actually has to be truly diversified across many asset classes. Yep. So uh, if it was, you know, say it was diversified, you know, fifty investments, fifty different companies of varying. Uh, micro to mega cap corporations from pharmaceuticals to tech, you know, international, domestic, developing, emerging markets, you know, everything. If it was super diversified, uh, we would want to go with trainer. And if it's not diversified, we would want to go with sharp. And for the, for the simple definition, Brendan or Mike, could either of you guys just kind of, and maybe a one sentence explain why trainer lends to diversified and why sharp lends to non-diversified? So with, with sharp ratio, we're, we're worried about all the risks that are out there. So the risks that we can get rid of, the risks that we can't get rid of. And, and so when you're not diversified, you have to worry about all of those potential risks that come in. Trainer uh, is just worried about the risk that you can't get rid of anymore, right? So we're down to that to that systematic or market risk, uh, and, and then you're just worried about how they're competing against really a, a very specific benchmark as opposed to uh, all, all the different risks that are out. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good summation. Can you uh, anything you'd want to add to that, Mike? Well, just just my thing. If you can't decide, I, I've always said for years, when in doubt, be sharp. Yep. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that's a good one. To that. So, but this is good stuff. I hope folks play this back and take notes. <laughs> from uh, the things that you and Brendan are, are, are talking about right now. Yeah, definitely. So I, I like that. That's a good rule of thumb. When in doubt, be sharp. Uh, especially I feel when it comes to the CFP exam, uh, they're going to tend to be overly cautious when it comes to the definition of diversified. Good point. Yep. All right, guys, uh, let's get into our first topic that we wanted to discuss today. And I know it's a topic uh, near and dear to your heart, uh, Brendan, something you're really interested in, which is cool because it seems to be some a topic that the CFP board is getting more and more interested in as time goes on, and that's uh, behavioral finance. Yeah, the industry in general, for sure, is, is getting more you know, kind of honed into how our emotions play into our decisions. Definitely. Yeah. Behavioral finance is super important. Uh, People are really taking a notice to it. Uh, They're making decisions based around it more and more. They're trying to limit their personal biases in their investing. It's, it's definitely a hot topic uh, in the industry because I feel it's also something 
that's easy for the layman to grasp. Uh, you know, you don't need to be sure. in the financial industry to understand the psychology of investing. You know, it's not like Trainer Sharp and Jensen that we were just talking about, where if you show this that to a person off the street, they'll have no idea what you're talking about. Well, and interestingly enough, uh, the academics and the in the, uh, the the strategists for for decades didn't even take into consideration that people had emotions when they made these big decisions with money. They just pretended they didn't exist, right? So, yeah, so, it was all about the invisible yeah. hand of the market, and the market is a hundred percent logical. Which is, you know, just spend a day <laughs> and, and then you'll and know. I'm, and I'm glad that you guys are here to explain it. <clears throat> I'm old enough that my exposure to behavioral finance was when I was growing up. If I didn't behave, I didn't get an allowance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's some credence to that. I still like that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's dive into it uh, real quick. I just want to address, you know. We've been noticing some more behavioral finance questions on the test. It's been tested on a little bit. What are the kind of like types of questions that we'll probably see on the exam as related to behavioral finance? I, I definitely think that that what you're starting to see is is more recognition um, of the need to you know base your decisions and, and help your clients base their decisions in economics versus emotion. So it'll be things where if you get, you know, someone feels nervous or, or doesn't think that they have a big risk tolerance, it's more about getting down to, to, to quantifying uh, what those, I think people have, have, have expectations of, of how they interpret risk and, and how comfortable they are with risk that are probably different from the reality. Um, both, you know, I think there's, there's plenty of people who think that they're very comfortable with risk and they're not. Uh, and I think that there's people who are who are thinking that they're not comfortable with risk at all, and they're actually more comfortable than they think they are. And so I think the questions are more trying to get down to uh, more of an economic decision versus an emotional-driven uh, decision. Uh, and a lot of it is also surrounding, you know, the, the CFP board has has moved in in the last five or so years uh, to talk about the way that we communicate with our clients to make sure that we are, you know, addressing some of those concerns and not just. Uh, discounting them and, and making sure that we are explaining things in understandable uh, language so that they they can act on our our recommendations uh, as opposed to just being overwhelmed with the words that are coming out of our mouths and, and then they don't do anything. So I think that the questions are really more for, the, the the content in the in the, uh, the the questions are going to be surrounding you know using. Uh, the biases that we all have, you know, kind of to our advantage to make sure that we're getting on the same side of the table as the client. Yeah, that that's my experience from talking to students who have recently taken the exam, the types of behavioral finance questions that they received. It's it's in lines of, you know, you have a client, there was just a massive drop in the stock market. Your client calls you up panicking, wanting to completely liquidate their portfolio of CDs and bonds. Uh, what do you do? It's like, hey, take the order and collect the commission, uh, B, uh, calm the client down and talk about, you know, the, the effects of a, a drop in the stock market on the bond market, uh, you know, C, uh, ignore the client or, you know, D, uh, you know, something else. And it's just, you know, what, what do you do in these situations when you have, you know, a panicking client? It's hard. You know, I, I, I go back to, to the conversations that I was having with people during the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And, you know, we, you just – and it's not just with money. With any, any decisions that we make under duress or under any kind of strain of emotion, we typically don't make the best decisions for ourselves. Uh, and, and back then, I mean, I would have, I would have you know, normally very logical uh, people calling me crying that they have to get out of the market because they're watching the news or they're watching CNBC and and they they, they just can't they can't deal with any more pain and and so uh, there there was a, a couple of times with with clients where I told them I just I wouldn't do it for them you know they they'd have to fire me and, and find someone else to do it because I just knew it was not in their best interest uh, and um, you know try to counsel them through. Uh, and and, and, and pers- when you have some perspective on it, which I think we have now, you're able to look back at, at that great recession, which is really kind of a significant event, and realize, you know, we started the, the, the process of the downturn really in earnest in June of 08, and we bottomed in mid-March of 09. And, and so while it feels like forever when you're going through it, the reality is it really wasn't that long. And if you were able to stay invested or even better – uh, have the the objective ability to invest 
cash or, 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 or rotate from fixed income into stocks, you know, during the, 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 the at or near the market bottom, you did really well over the last 12 years or 11 years. Uh, another podcast that I like, The Motley Fool, uh, that's another great finance podcast. Um, they have a saying on there that I always like to take to heart where uh, they like to say, the market always goes up more than it goes down, but it always goes down faster than it goes up. Yeah. And, and that, you know, we'll talk in a little while about something called the disposition effect, which is exactly why that occurs. Right. And, you know, you don't notice this steady climb up. You just, you know, you're like, oh, I'm making money. That's cool. But then all of a sudden, when you lose a bunch all in one day, it just has that much more of a psychological impact on you. Yep. Without question. And, and you know, a, a very smart person once told me that the, the only thing that you have to remember about the uh, about investing in, in, in markets is it's not timing of the market, it's time in the market. And, and yeah. that's, you know, goes to your point, Jerry, that it, you know, it tends to go up over time. You know, the, 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 uh, the market tends to follow something called the sub-Martingale process, where it, 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 it has a lot of volatility in any given time period, but over time, uh, pr- prices tend to rise. Right. You know, and that's why we're constantly having, you know, record breaking days on the market year over year over year. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's for be- better or worse. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you look at if you look at a map of uh, the Dow Jones from like 1908 or whenever it was founded to today, it's pretty much a 45 degree angle up with some dips in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so let's get into some of those kind of uh, behavioral finance anecdotes. Uh, I know, Brandon, you have a lot of uh, kind of cool stories or just, you know, perspective of, uh, you know, looking at them and the psychology of it all. Yeah. And I think that really what it comes down to is acknowledging the fact that when we talk about money, right? So money to us uh, really gets at some of our base psychological uh, places where we, we, we associate having money with the ability to just do the basic things, clothe ourselves, shelter ourselves and feed ourselves. And when we when we threaten that stability or that security, we, we have very emotional responses to it, uh, and and we're we're really pre-wired as as human beings to to do the exact opposite of of what you're supposed to do in investing. You know, we're technically we're supposed to buy low and and sell high, and it's it's hard to actually do that. And and what you find is most people uh, tend to buy high and sell low, right? We we like to. We like to buy and, and, and expose our assets to risk when things are going well and everyone feels great and there's a lot of euphoria and optimism in the market. You're seeing that now. You know, we're, we're looking at a, a melt up in, in U.S. stock markets and a lot of that is going to be people who have sat on the sidelines waiting for a pullback thinking that maybe I'm going to miss it. So they're throwing money at it right now and, and you know, they're investing at, at all-time highs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we also see it, as I said, with, with some of the clients that I dealt with in, in 2008-2009 where they watch the news and, and they just are f- hyper-focused on, on the devastation that's occurring in the markets. So at least that's what they're hearing. And, and they just they, – they need to get out. They can't take it anymore. They can't take another cent of loss. So they sell at the bottom. You know, and so it, it, our emotions will tell us to do the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do. And then there's a number of different reasons why that happens. You know, a lot of it does come from uh, listening to what other people are saying. It comes from what we'll talk about here in a few minutes, the disposition effect, which is, you know, the, the, we feel more pain from losses than we feel benefit from gains. And, and so the fact that we hurt more from losing than we feel good about winning causes us to try to avoid those losses as much as we possibly can. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, we do things which which are counterintuitive to the success of an overall investment portfolio. Right. As the kids call it, Brendan, it's uh, FOMO, uh, fear, of yeah, mis- yeah. <laughs> fear of missing out. Yep. Yep. I agree with that. I, I think that we've got, you know, we've, we've certainly always will have that with retail investors, you know, but I would say that financial planners are also not absolved of or, or financial advisors, investment managers are not absolved of these emotions. Oh yeah. Uh, when you're looking at you know your career and your reputation, uh, you have these emotional factors that come into it as well. And, and I, they, again, they're hard to avoid, even though it's not your money. Yeah. Even if you study this and and know about these effects, it's really hard not to fall prey to them. I mean, my, I myself, when I look at my own portfolio. The really hard decision for me is knowing when to sell uh, a security, even though feeling like it is at the top because you're afraid. It's like, well, if I sell it now, it could go up another two points tomorrow and I'm going to miss out on that. 
Well, you're not alone. Sell disciplines are much more difficult. It's much more difficult to determine when to sell something than it is to when when to buy it. You know, and I, I think that um, uh, that that that's that's you know, tail as old as time. It's very hard to to separate yourself, especially if you're doing well. You know, it's you, I always say you should buy things when you feel like you're crazy for buying them. You should sell things when you feel like you're crazy for selling them, and you're probably going to end up doing okay. Yeah, true. Uh, so, so let's talk about that uh, that disposition. Um, so okay, yeah. So so you know, and I think that uh, we we had an article that came out in one of the the recent newsletters, and, and Jerry put it as well as I've seen it. Uh, when you get it down to to just in in as base case uh, as you can, we hurt much more from losing ten dollars. So if you lost a ten dollar bill on the sidewalk, you would think about it; it would bother you for a lot longer than you would say, "Hey, I found twenty dollars today." Right, that twenty dollars would be spent, it'd be gone, uh, and you probably wouldn't think that much about it again. Uh, but but if you lost a ten dollar bill out of your wallet, you'd think, mm, you know, that, that that's that was stupid of me. I made a big mistake. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the 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 fact that we do have this misalignment between upside and downside in terms of the emotions with with markets uh, creates these situations where you know we we seek to uh, confirm that we are right on things. So we tend to sell our winners too quickly. Uh, because when we sell something when we're up, we get a confirmation that says you were right about this decision. Like this was this was the correct decision for you, uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it was the right time to sell it, but you did it because you wanted to confirm that you were right. The flip side of that is even though we're suffering from the downturn, uh, and there may be benefit from a tax perspective, there may be benefit to to you know moving the money out of a dead asset into something that has more opportunity. We tend to avoid selling losers because if we sell the loser, it confirms that we were wrong. We made a bad decision. Uh, and so because of this disposition effect where we do feel that pain more more significantly, uh, we tend to avoid regret. We don't like to talk about the fact that we lost money. We don't like to think about the fact that we lost money. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it's an old joke around uh, investment houses that say, you know, it's not a, it's not a loss until you sell it. Uh, but there's some really psychological underpinnings to that, um, and, and, and people people will will pursue that to a fault. People make it personal. It's really what it comes down to, you know. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a very personal thing. Again, it goes back to to um, you know, money gives us freedom to do things. You know, in, in if we have enough to cover our basic needs, it gives us freedom to do more and in, in, in better things. And, and so, uh, when we when we st- we start to do mental accounting, we start to to, to start quantifying. If I hadn't lost that money, I could have done X, Y, and Z for myself or for my family. And it's just, it's, we, we, we rabbit chase on that. And so, um, you know, it, it can cause us to fall into a couple of different categories uh, when, we, when we lose money. Uh, people can take less risk than they normally would, uh, or, and, or they can take more risk. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I'll compare it to gambling. Uh, and as I've said to Mike and Jerry in the past, I, I don't like, associating investing with gambling because they're not the same thing certainly uh investing you know the the odds aren't necessarily stacked against you um but psychologically we have very similar approaches to it and and so if you think about yourself uh those of you that have had the experience walking into a casino um when you gamble and let's say you walk in you have a hundred dollars in your pocket and you say i'm only going to lose this hundred bucks um, and if you think about it, just, you know, we walk in there assuming we're not going to come out with the money that we walk in with. But when we, when we lose money initially, we can do one of two things. We can uh, get snake bit where we say, that was really stupid of me. I can't believe I just risked that money. It was foolish. Uh, I'm not going to ever do it again. And that would cause us to take less risk than we would normally be comfortable with. Or we can have the exact opposite of something called break-evenitis where we start saying, okay, I lost 50 bucks. That means I have to get 50 bucks back in order to break even. Uh, and so people take excessively more risk than they normally would just to try to get back whole. Uh, and, and again, neither of those tend to be good outcomes uh, as well. Uh, the flip side is, let's say we go in with that 100 bucks and we win. Let's say we win $100. We'll take the original 100 that we put in our pocket, uh, we walked into the casino with and put it in our pocket and saying, worst case scenario, uh, I'm I'm breaking even because I am playing with house money, uh, and with that hundred dollars that people won, they're apt to take a lot more risk because they don't associate it as their own. They feel like they've they've been given it. Uh, the problem with that is it is actually yours. If you were to walk out of the casino with that 
extra $100, no one's going to stop you at the door, no one's going to arrest you, it's your money, uh, and therefore it should, be, it should be granted the same amount of risk tolerance that, that your normal uh, or your initial $100 would. And people do the exact same thing in markets with gains and losses. Yeah. Uh, also kind of a tangent on that going to it. Uh, what I've noticed is people's perceptions on winning versus losing. Uh, usually when we lose, it's bad luck. But when we win, it's because we made the right decision. Yep. So uh, it, it leads me to, to another point that, that we, all, we all suffer from overconfidence. Um, and we all have – we all overestimate our abilities – uh, even if we don't outwardly admit it, we all do it. And it's, again, it's a self-defense mechanism. But if you were to ask a room, um, and, and that's why, so there's a lot of these psychological exercises that are done with push buttons. Uh, so they'll, they'll get a group of people together and they don't actually have them raise their hand uh, because people won't be honest, right? They're not going to give what they, actual, uh, what they actually think. So if you give them the plungers to push a button, you'll get the real answers. So if you were to gather, you know, 100 people in a room and ask simple questions like, how many of you think that you're above average uh, in terms of your skill for driving? Technically, half the room should raise their hand or push their button, half the room shouldn't. <laughs> but, you know, overwhelmingly, 90% of the people in that room are going to think that they're above average in terms of their skill for driving or above average intelligence, or above average looking, or above average sense of humor. So we all overestimate where we are actual relative to our peer groups. Uh, and that comes down to, um, uh, to our investment choices as well. And, and to Jerry's point, uh, it, particularly if it happens first. So if we put money into something, and it's the first time we've ever done it, uh, and even if we had no idea why or, or what we were putting our money in, and, and that investment turned out to be a positive experience, we immediately start to think, that's because I am really good at this, right? So I'm so good at this, uh, I, I was right my very first time, and, and therefore I'm going to continue to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, it comes back to that, to that overconfidence issue. We, we overestimate our skills. Uh, and there's a number of factors that play into that as well. Um, you know, the more familiar are we, we are with the task, uh, the more information we have, uh, the more control we have over the situation. So that's when you, again, associating it back to gambling, when you go into uh, casinos, they, they, they thrive on this illusion of control where they give you things to point to and they give you buttons to push, things to pull on, uh, and it's because you feel like you are, you're controlling your outcome. And, you know, you can, you can also align it very simply to people that play the lottery. You know, statistically, if you pick the numbers, you have no better chance of winning than if you just have a random number assigned to you, uh, yet most people feel like they have to pick their lucky numbers, even though those numbers aren't any luckier than the ones that they would have been given uh, that were spit out by the machine itself is also important, not just from an investing standpoint, but also just from a mental health standpoint. Uh, I, I read this really interesting uh, article where uh, the scientists did a study where they you know, got 100 people together and they asked them, you know, imagine you're standing in line at a bank and a bank robber comes in, tells everyone to put their, their hands in the air and fires a shot off randomly. And that shot hits you in the shoulder. Do you think you are lucky that it only hit you in the shoulder and didn't hit you somewhere vital or are you unlucky that you got hit at all and uh what they found is that people who said that they were lucky that they weren't hurt worse uh actually were just all around happier uh from from just a measurable statistic as far as you know how they perceive themselves and their their surrounding uh, so, you know, having control over that uh, psycholog uh, psychology uh, can really just help you enjoy life in general better. Yeah, and, and I, I would agree with that. And, and, you know, we certainly can't just just like certain types of risk in the market, we can't we can't totally eliminate. You, you can't get rid of your biases. You know, you just have to be aware of them and try to objectively avoid them getting in your way when it comes to your decisions. And, and if we were to look at the, you know, all of the modern portfolio theory statistics and a lot of the, the asset uh, pricing models that are, that are out there today, you know, we're, we're, we're based on things that were done in the 1950s and 60s uh, and where they, you know, they had to hold something constant. And, and the thing that they held constant is that, you know, all human beings, all investors – are what are called mean variance optimizers, meaning that they always rationally and unemotionally choose the greatest amount of return given a unit of risk. 
Uh, and anybody that's spent any time in this industry at all knows that that's just not the case. You know, people just don't rationally look at their investments. Uh, you know, even the most rational investors are still fairly emotional. Uh, and, and so the, the, there's a lot of work being done right now in, in behavioral finance to try to understand, you know, the impact of these decisions. And it's not just with their investments. You know, a lot of, a lot of behavioral finance programs are based in the schools of psychology uh, where they take a look at, you know, things like big monetary decisions, successes or failures on the family dynamic. You know, what does it lead to downstream in terms of, you know, divorce, substance abuse, things like that. And, and uh, so there's a lot of really fascinating work being done right now. Yeah, it's the the fallacy of the invisible hand of the market. You know, that the invisible hand yeah. of the market, that theory only works if everyone's 100% logical making logical decisions. <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's, you know, again, you know, to your point here, that, that's another one of the underlying uh, assumptions is, is that, you know, all investors have homogenous expectations uh, and have the same exact time horizon. And, and again, so there's a lot of simplifying assumptions that go into these models, uh, which we just know are not true. And, and so, uh, you know, until we, until we get the, the, the skill or the, the, the computing power, I guess, to, 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 to be able better to quantify or qualify uh, these these emotional biases, it'll be very difficult for us to, to come out with any models that are, are, you know, appropriately discounting them. Yeah, and that's why we don't have any model with a 100% success rate. No, nope, not at all. Uh, and, and so I would also say that there's a lot of great books that are out there for, for people to read on these topics and, you know, there's a number of white papers, but I think a great place to start um, one of the best books that I've read uh, about behavioral finances is, is The Psychology of Investing uh, by an, an author by the name of John Knopfsinger. Um, and it goes through a bunch of different tests that, that show here's all the ways that we're overconfident and, and uh, there's a number of other factors that, that, uh, uh, that, that, that we are conditioned. You know, herd mentality is another one. People always ask, what are other people doing with their investments because we feel more comfortable in groups uh, because back in the day, if you got separated from the group, you were eaten by something, right? <laughs> so we feel more right. comfortable with with doing you know things in in herds, uh, and you know the herd may not have the same risk tolerance as you, or the herd may not have the same liquidity or time horizon needs that you do. So just because they're all doing doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for you. Uh, but the, the the psychology of investing goes through all of these relatively. Uh, Low detail. It's a really quick read, and, and I find it to be fascinating. And if you have any interest at all in, in behavioral finance, it's a great place to start. All right. So good stuff. Now, since you're on, Brendan, we definitely wanted to take advantage of having the program director uh, on the cast. Uh, just wanted to kind of get your perspective of the education curriculum and you know, what stu what you're seeing from students, uh, you know, what tips you could give for people maybe just starting their path tips for people who are maybe finishing up their path and starting the capstone. Cause you look at what thousands of capstones every year, Brendan, something like that. A lot. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Yep. For, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I feel, I feel compelled to, to give them, people put a lot of time into them. Right. And, and so, uh, I, I feel compelled to, to, to listen to, to every word that they say, because, it's not easy, and there's a lot of effort that gets put into it, and I, I think that they're owed the uh, the attention that they deserve. Yeah. So, uh, but it is it's overwhelming. <laughs> Come test time, it's it's pretty much a full time job uh, on top of my full time job. So, right. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know, Brendan actually personally grades all of the capstone uh, projects that students put together for the Boston Institute of Finance uh, final capstone project. So that's a lot of work, Brendan. So you you've seen you probably have more experience with capstones than anyone. I know. So I think you're a great person to kind of uh, pick pick their ear and see, you know, what's what's going on with, uh, you know, with the capstone, how to get the most out of it. Sure. Yeah. And I, I can say that, that at the beginning, when when the, the capstone was introduced in late 2012, early 2013, I hated it. I thought it was a terrible idea. Uh, I didn't understand why there was another hurdle being thrown in front of people who had just spent all this time in um, you know, preparation for the CFP exam. And I've really come to appreciate why they did it. Um, and it, it really comes back to some of these psychological factors that we were talking about, where it just shows that, you know, great, we stuff all of this information into our heads and we know it. And, and uh, that's not good enough, right? We need to make sure that we able to, are able to understand it to the point 
that we can articulate it to the people who don't know it, right, and that are coming to us for our services. Uh, and so we're able to conversationally uh, give them action items that they can, they, they can act upon and, and, and improve their, their financial outcomes. So the, then the capstone really does a good job at, at, at uh, uh, putting you through those paces before it's actually a live client in front of you where, you know, you run the risk of, you know, making a mistake and losing a client or not getting a client. So I think it's a good uh, experience both for the student and for the uh, financial planning industry in general. Yeah, definitely. And so for our listeners who don't know what the capstone is, is uh, it's a basically cap off your education curriculum. Uh, you'll receive uh, basically hypothetical clients, you know, background information, financial statements, uh, just a bunch of information about a client. And then you're going to put together a financial plan for them and then record uh, yourself basically being in a in a meeting, in a presentation with these clients where you're presenting the financial plan to them. Uh, and that is what gets graded on, you know. It, it's the dreaded role play. Yes. Which every, I hate role playing more than anybody. I hate it. And, and so it, I know everyone's so uncomfortable going through it, but uh, just muster on. Yeah. <laughs> I've, had a, I, I've I, had a similar experience with uh, hating it when it first came out, but now loving it because I see, I mean, my focus is quite often on the exam, as you guys know. And. Yep. Um, I see it as the perfect launching pad to, to graduate or transist into from purely academic. I'm learning numbers. I'm learning rules. I'm learning laws, et cetera, into how does that all apply in scenario driven financial planning uh, circumstances? Because that's what the exam is going to be about. It's not just academic recall of stuff. It's how do you use all that knowledge in this particular scenario or goal or objective or problem? And I just think it's beautiful for that to change that mindset. Yeah, and, and for people that are in the industry, you know, maybe it's it's a little redundant, right, because you're doing this potentially on a daily basis. But for people who, who are career changes, which there's a lot of in these types of programs, uh, you know, it's it's a good opportunity for you to, like, actually see what financial planning meetings are about and um, – you know, I, I, this is the stuff you do on a, on a daily basis or at least a regular basis in a financial planning practice. And, and so it's important that you uh, that you practice just like anything else. So what are some of the kind of pitfalls that you see people fall into with the capstone? Um, well, there are there's two distinct groups. There are people who take it too seriously and there are people who don't take it seriously enough. And, and uh, it's amazing to me that uh, there's there's a lot of. Uh, there's more of those two groups than there are the people in the middle who kind of just go right down, you know, we'll call them Goldilocks, right, who, who do it just right. Um, and, and, you know, truthfully, there's, there's a lot more people who, who go to more myopic detail than they need to. Um, you know, it gets a little bit out of the scope of, of what's going on. And people also, I think, are too uh, focused on, you know, one of the, the, one of the detriments that we have is if this was a real scenario – You'd have the opportunity to interview the clients, you know, so you'd go through a meeting, you'd find a lot of things out about them. Uh, and, and those of us who are in the, in the practice understand uh, financial planning is, is, is a, a very wide spectrum field where you could have 10 financial planners in a room given the same set of facts and you're going to get eight, you know, maybe nine different scenarios that come out of that meeting. All good. Uh, but again, it just comes down to different different perceptions, and and so um, one of the one of the the skills I think that's that's really important to be a good financial planner is you need to be a good interviewer, and and so that interview process is kind of lost here. So people get kind of really hung up on that, and you know, so we try to tell people uh, at the onset to just operate under whatever assumptions that you'd like. You know, pretend that you've interviewed the clients, um, just just. Give us an idea of, of where you're headed. Give us a, a Word document that says, these are the uh, assumptions that I'm operating under, you know, and, and we'll take it from there. Um, and then the people that don't take it seriously enough, they, they try to get the capstone done in a day. And, um, you, can, you know, it's really reflected in their work. And they end up taking more time than they normally would have because things get sent back to them for review and – uh, you know, just just take it seriously. It's again, it's 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 a, a required piece by the CFP board uh, to complete your education. Uh, you doing it allows us to validate to the CFP board that you're prepared to sit for the exam. Uh, so it's it's certainly something that should be taken seriously. Definitely. 
Yeah, uh, that's because uh, I I call out to all the students who do have trouble with the capstone to kind of help them out. And yeah, I I, I, feel, I don't know if they just think that it's a check off the box type situation or not. But yeah, we'll, we'll occasionally I'll get the student who sends in like a one sentence capstone, and it's uh, yeah. This is a good shot. It's just it's it's amazing. <laughs> like you go through all the work and you think like this is this is what I'm going to produce. You know, here's here's the <laughs> yeah. sentence I have to say about their estate plan. Yeah. You know, and it's just I don't think Clarence Darrow could have given us an estate planning, you know, articulated in one sentence. So <laughs> they should yeah. save more. And, and also period. <laughs> also to remember working the capstone that all of the information that we have about the client is in the case facts and the narrative. I've gotten hundreds of emails over the years where the student will say, Hey, how is Mrs. Jones's health? <laughs> like, like, you know, yep. withholding some of those facts that would make a right. difference. And so I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, just give us the assumptions you're working under here. Uh, Cause it's amazing yeah. what kind of questions they're going to come up with about like, what haven't you told us about the client? Well, and it's also an opportunity for you to kind of, you know, there's certain things you have to hit, right? But there's a lot of there's a lot of gray area, and and you can go down a path that maybe you want to try and, and say I've never really talked about this because the the recording only has to be you know a, a few minutes of you presenting some portion of the plan. Maybe you want to practice presenting some portion of the estate plan because you've never done it before and you want to do it with clients. And, and you know, here's a great opportunity for you to do it with really no negative consequence. Yeah. What I really like about our capstone in particular is that it really tests people's uh, value add to their clients because for our our capstone, not to spoil it too much, but uh, the hypothetical client in it is very well off, you know, inherited a $10 million as a you know, good paying job, plenty of assets. And I have a lot of students who come to me just struggling. It's like, these people have all the money that they would ever need. Like, I don't know what to tell yep. them. It's like, well, yep. if all you're ever doing for your clients is telling them how to make more money, you know, are you really providing that CFP experience to them? Being a CFP is more than just telling your clients how to make money. It's, it's what to do. Yeah, there's, there's definitely it. inefficiencies embedded in those cases. Right. Yeah, there's there's lots of red flags in those cases. There's lots of things that, as a CFP professional, you can help them out with uh, estate planning, insurance planning, uh, the just planning for their overall financial well being. It's not just you know, do you have enough money to last you through retirement? And that's that's what I feel really sets the CFP apart from you know your average financial advisor who's just there doing retirement plans. Yep, without question. Awesome. Um, do we also kind of want to talk about, because, Brendan, you also teach the uh, investments section of the curriculum as well, right? I teach investments in, in fundamentals of financial planning. Oh, yes, planning. and fundamentals as well. So uh, both the fundamentals is the first course. Uh, investments is yep. the third course after in- insurance. So you're dealing – so you're really bookending the students. You know, you're dealing with them as they first come into the program and also the last yep. thing they do before they graduate from the program. Um, yep. Do you notice anything you know, as far as like how, how people change over the course from those, those two points? Yeah, I, I think that, that as, you know, anytime we, we start a new endeavor, we want to be the best at it that we possibly can. And, and uh, I think that people who are new to the program are hyper-focused on memorizing every word of every page. Uh, and that's just not what you need to do at this point in your in your pursuit of the CFP. Um, you know, the, the CFP board is, is, is very uh, particular where they, they have four E's to certification, where they have... Uh, the education requirement, then the exam requirement, and then from there you do an ethics pledge and prove the experience requirement. Uh, and, and so you have to look at the education and the exam as two distinct things. Now, a majority, a vast majority of the students that we have are sitting there in the course uh, to, to take the CFP exam. Um, so obviously a lot of them are going through the education with the exam in mind. Uh, but it's it's a long time. I mean, the fastest is going to be around 10 months to get through the curriculum. Uh, and so to try and memorize every word, uh, you're just not going to remember it 10 months down the road. And, and so that's why there's an exam prep that will help you, you know, recondition yourself to be, to be hyper-focused on the things that are likely to show up on the test. 
The other thing that you have to take into consideration is that things change, you know. So, so let, maybe it takes you a year, two, a year and a half to get through the program. Uh, and there's been a big tax law change or a big ch- as we see now in October, we had a big change to the, uh, the CFP board's standards of practice. Uh, and so you have to just be nimble enough to, to, to be able to say, okay, well, I know I memorized all this stuff or I learned all of these things and it's okay. And I got to let those go and learn the new things. And that's, you know, again, as, as, as I've been a, a practicing financial planner since 2000, I've been a CFP, I should say since 2006, there's been a ton of changes and things since since I've been there, and you just have to keep up to date, and that's just going to be part of of your existence in in the world of financial planning. Uh, and so I think that uh, you know at the beginning people tend to be you know really really laser focused on every word, and as they start progressing through the uh, the curriculum, they realize they can back off the throttle a little bit and and you know really lay the foundation uh, to to learn and, and, and to understand. Uh, the elements of financial planning, and then and then uh, worry about focusing on memorization for the test when the test comes around. Great. Well, I think that kind of wraps up everything that we wanted to talk about today. Uh, Mike, anything else you wanted to throw out there? Just want to thank Brennan for his time today. I thought this was an excellent episode. So thank you so much, and um, I just really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, anytime I can get on, I would love to do it. It's a great uh, it's a great thing that you guys are doing here, for sure. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, Brennan. And uh, for our listeners, too, if you guys have ideas of uh, topics that you'd like us to cover, uh, whether it's particular parts of the curriculum or being a CFP or, you know, real world, that's something we didn't really get a chance to talk about today. It, Brendan, is, you know, how you apply CFP to your, your everyday practice, because like we mentioned before, you are a practicing financial advisor as well yep. um, so if there's stuff like that that uh, our listeners want to hear about definitely write into us uh, you know let us know and we're happy to cover uh, you know anything that people want to hear and I can definitely tell you that what you're learning is not a waste of time you do actually use it every day yeah definitely I that's probably the biggest thing I hear from students who come back after they've passed the exam uh, you know I still stay in touch with a bunch of uh, uh, my former students and you know you wouldn't believe the number of them that just tell me it's like I use this stuff all the time in my practice. Yeah, and you should because it impresses people. I mean, it's it just it gives you it gives you a, a whole lot more credibility uh, than a lot of your peers in competition uh, that that that's out there. So it's you should use it. You spend a lot of time and a lot of money and effort uh, obtaining the 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 education, and, and you know, don't be afraid to to show off a bit. Yeah, <laughs> have a little flair for the dramatic. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys, and we will see everyone next time. Mm-hmm.